Sheila doesn't like to seek out praise, but she's beginning to be a hard act to follow. Yeah, she's doing a good job. All right, well, the children are leaving with their leaders to have their time. We'll stay in here. We're going to turn to 1 Kings 19. Last week, we continued our mini-series on Elijah. Today, we do the same by examining 1 Kings chapter 19. It's our third week into this series. But in the text last week, as you're turning there before the reading today, let's remind you, we unfolded a very powerful and dramatic story last Sunday of Elijah directly confronting the Baal worshippers. Particularly, he confronted King Ahab and those 450 prophets of Baal. And we've seen then the story demonstrated through the water-drenched wood that he put on the altar and he called down fire from heaven and it consumed all 12 barrels of water poured on it and all the water around it. Through that little illustration, it proved once again there is only one true God. I say once again it proved there's only one true God because now in consecutive weeks, while introducing ourselves to Elijah, 1 Kings 17, and seeing last week more of Elijah, 1 Kings 18, those two particular chapters continue to prove that point. That there is only one true God. In fact, if we could say that Elijah is keeping to his namesake. Remember, his name itself means the Lord is God. So it's kind of cool that the guy whose name means the Lord is God is going about showing everybody there's only one true God. So we could say then that Elijah has illustrated consecutively now in our weeks of study that God is mighty, he's sovereign, and all-powerful. But today, as we turn the page now once more to 1 Kings 19 to continue our story of Elijah, we're going to encounter a drastic change in the storyline. And as you can imagine, you know, after confronting Ahab and his wife Jezebel and all the Baal worshippers last week, and having the fire come down from heaven, and even having at the end of the chapter, you may remember 450 prophets of Baal were killed, you may be able to discern then that Elijah is not a very popular person, at least not in their eyes. Now, we think he's a hero. I, I admire the man. Like I told you before, he's my favorite prophet. But he's not very popular in their eyes. In fact, we could go so far to say, well, he's a wanted man. And today we see that in the story, and then because of that, we see him actually running, fleeing. Now, not fleeing running from God, mind you, but he's running and fleeing from the evil, wicked witch named Jezebel. And we ask ourselves, well, why would this man of God, who's proven to be victorious and proven to be a worthy servant, why would he run? Why would he flee? And the answer to that question is really the central storyline for the chapter today. As it reveals that Elijah begins, he begins to concentrate on his own circumstances rather than God. But then God, as we'll see the story evolve, gets his attention into that sweet sound of his whisper. A powerful whisper is given to Elijah to get his attention once more back on God rather than the circumstances. 
So stay with me this morning as we now reveal all that truth in 1 Kings 19. We're not going to read the entire chapter, read through verse 18 this morning. But 1 Kings chapter 19 starts off and continues the story in this way. Verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel, of course, Ahab the king, Jezebel's his wife, all that Elijah had done, everything we've been talking about so far, particularly last Sunday in 1 Kings 18, and how he had killed all the prophets with his sword. Well, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Well, then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die saying, It is enough. Now, o Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he laid down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a head at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mouth of God. Well, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind poured the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake of fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel forsaken the covenant thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nibshai, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abdamola, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Father, let me thank you today for this reading of the word and the continuation of our story and the section of Elijah, where we pray today that as we see Elijah's actions, 
and begin to unfold the story that we have read that you'll speak to directly to our hearts. Let us heed this message today, Lord, you have for us and understand the situation that Elijah finds him in and see how we can parallel his situation to our lives and find that, yes, we can be in that same situation. So speak to us today, Lord, and reveal your truth to us and let's be thankful for what we shall learn and shall leave here with today and we can apply to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, from what we've already learned about Elijah in the previous weeks, really in the previous two chapters, we can say, as I mentioned earlier, he's proven to be victorious. We can even say that Elijah has been triumphant. Victorious and triumphant over the Baal prophets and even those dirty, nasty Baal worshippers. And he has proven a couple of times now we've witnessed that there's really only one God. So, yeah, it seems that as Elijah has done this, I mean, recognize this, then it's God who assures the victory. I mean, Elijah is just basically the servant. I mean, it's, God is ultimately victorious. Being the servant of God that he is, we can say that Elijah then has emerged as a champion. And again, he's made notice to everyone, as his name suggests, there's only one God. And so victory really is at hand. We've seen that. But as much as that is the case, that has been a triumphant occasion, victory's at hand, Jezebel is not impressed one bit. Now go back to the text, look in verses 1 and 2, because it informs us that Ahab, I mean, he's kind of scared of Jezebel, like I am a Sheila, okay? Not equating, let me make sure we're certain, I'm not equating Sheila as Jezebel because she's a bad, bad woman. And Sheila's not. Okay, make sure that record's straight. Okay, but it's like, you know, husbands at times are afraid of their wives. Or maybe you should be. So Ahab is afraid of Jezebel, so let's go back to verses 1 and 2. He goes back and tells Jezebel about the rout that occurred at Mount Carmel. I mean, again, it was a, a momentous occasion. It was victory was at hand. And as a result, then she said the bounty on his head. Look in verse 2. She says, the messenger sent to Elijah and said, from her words, so may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as one of them, the prophets, they probably were slain, by this time tomorrow. So what you can see there rather quickly is this is a woman who's had enough. I mean, she's fed up. She's like on a rampage, and she now desires to see the man of God dead. And then when Elijah hears these words, he's immediately stricken with fear. As verse 3 tells us, he, he runs, he flees for his life. He goes on a day's journey, which is about 15 miles. He's traveling into the wilderness, into Beersheba, and sat under a broom tree. Some translations say juniper tree. And you're saying, well, I don't have those in my backyard. No, you don't. But here's a picture of one. This is a picture of a broom tree or a juniper tree. You can see Elijah even laying under. This is what it looks like. It's not something we have here in southern Indiana. But it's much like a desert bush that grows to a height of maybe 12 feet. It provides some, but you see not very much shade. 
and that's where Elijah runs to. But notice in verse 4 then, as he's laying in the wilderness under the broom tree, he asked, look at his request. He, he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough, no, O Lord, I've had enough. Take away my life. I am no better than my father's. Look at Elijah's request. I'm thinking, whoa, wait a minute. This is an abrupt change in the storyline because I haven't seen Elijah act like this before. I mean, what happened to our triumphant, victorious champion we had heard about and referred to? I mean, like now we see that Elijah is maybe feeling like defeated. I mean, how else can you explain him sitting under a broom tree and saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. I mean, it's like Elijah's just throwing in the towel. And I'm not used to seeing Elijah like that. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, what's up with this? I mean, what's up with, what's up with his actions? Because this is new or uncharted waters for the story we've been seeing the last couple of times pertaining to Elijah. We've been dissecting his life last two weeks and he has been nothing like this. So be sure to see that this is truly remarkable that Jezebel's threat terrified Elijah as much as it did. And I can recall in 1 Kings 17 in our first week of knowing about Elijah how he eventually went to the widow in Zarephath, who was about to die as she was making her last meal, and, and he, he, he told her not to be afraid. But now with a twist of irony, he himself seems to be fearful. So fearful, so discouraged, that he actually runs and sits under a broom tree and prays that he may die. I, it's more than I expected, really, in the storyline pertaining to Elijah. That he runs to a broom tree in the wilderness, finds a little bit of shade when he gets this threat from Jezebel, and asks the Lord that he may die. I, I'm listening, I'm watching, but I'm also applying. I'm thinking, as we all need to now maybe assess our situation, have we ever been there? Have we ever been and found ourselves in a moment in which is like Elijah, in which he's having? That you're so depressed, you're so discouraged, you're just simply ready to give up. I think a lot of us have been there. I have friends and family members who have been there. I mean, they've had cancer and become so tired of it, so tired of the surgeries and tired of the treatments and they're they're ready to just simply they simply die and be with the Lord. My dad was one of those. Ray Goldie was one of those. Mac McDuffie, a brave Marine, was one of those. It's people we know. And sometimes that's our very lives. We begin to recognize it's a hard, lonely road at times in life. And as we recognize this truth in the loneliness as well as the fact that there are times which we find ourselves down, depressed, and nearly defeated, we also need to recognize a solid application truth in our lives, which is this, that God cares for you, and he protects all of his children. He cares so much for you and wants to provide and protect you. 
as all of his children. A saying that I recognize that people maybe say that all the time and hear that all the time, that God loves you and he cares for you and he protects you. And, and so I, I, upon hearing that, I also recognize then that, as I said quite often, that people eventually say when they hear that so much, they eventually say, okay, I hear you saying God loves me, provides for me, protects me as all of us children, but why do bad things happen to good people? And that's an age-old question that takes a lot of time to unpack. And then we may never actually fully come to an answer. But yes, unfortunately, bad things do happen to good people. But notice as a result of those things happening, it often brings us into a more meaningful and deeper relationship with God. An example is when I was in Texas, I had a church member that used to always get upset and understood why she would get upset. I mean, she had a miscarriage, and she would always get really upset when she began to think about it, and she would talk about the pain and the hurt and the sorrow and the sadness from the unfortunate turn of events that led to her miscarriage. And, that, and I can understand that. I mean, I've never actually had a child, but I understand her hurt from the fact that she had this miscarriage. But then one day, as we were in a small group study time, and then we were about then as a group to pray for her and provide some comfort for her again as she was thinking about it and talking about it. She suddenly stopped and, and said, wait a minute, don't, don't pray yet. I want to share with you that I told my mom that mom I said, mom, this isn't fair. It happened to me. I mean, why did this have to happen to me? I mean, she's just pouring her heart out to us. But she also told us then that her, when she told her mom, why does this have to happen to me? It's not fair. Her mom told her, why not you? <laughs> I remember thinking to myself, that's not good counsel. I mean, how's that helpful to her? I mean, she pours her heart out to her mom like she is to me, saying, I mean, why does this have to happen to me? And her mom said, well, why not you? I'm thinking, that, that, that's not helpful. In fact, I may even said that because I remember she said, that she began to explain to us why that helped her. Why her mom said, why not you helped her? And I explained, and she said that she, when her mom told her, why not you, she began to realize, well, I mean, God is God. And, and not really any one of us are any better than the other. And when her mom said, why not you, she began to process in her heart and her mind that, It'd be selfish thinking for it to not happen to me and someone else. Not how that may help you or not, but I, I see then through the illustration that unfortunately circumstances in life happen. And all around us, see bad things happen to good people. We're all going to have times in which something to us happens that we wish did not. I mean, the miscarriage or divorce or cancer or bankruptcy. I mean, there's many different things that can happen in life because nobody is immune from life. Life happens all around us. And as life happens all around us, also add to the fact that we live in a fallen world. And we always have lived in a fallen world ever since Genesis chapter 3. But again, here's the point. Living in a fallen world, things happening, 
life unfolding, God is still there. He still loves us, and the hand of Jesus still reaches out to us each and every day. I mean, he, Jesus is there. And God never leaves us without his protection. In our house, we've been doing a lot of remodeling lately, and we got a lot of the inside done. We're about to work on the outside with a lot of bunch of siding yesterday. It's about to make a bunch of weekend work for me, okay? But there's a sign in our kitchen that I noticed that we need to observe. I mean, you can't see it, but here's what the sign says. We talk about God never leaving us. He always provides protection. The sign in our kitchen says, The will of God will not take you where the grace of God will not protect you. Now, meditate for that just a minute. Look at it behind me. The will of God will not take you where the grace of God will not protect you. That's a wonderful, beautiful truth. And sometimes we, we tend to forget this beautiful truth. I mean, we go through life so often and things begin to happen and it happens so quickly, we forget we're still under God's protection and His love. That He still cares for us. Sometimes life just happens too quickly. So we need to slow down and think about it and meditate upon the fact that the will of God will not take you where the grace of God will not protect you and love you and be with you. So in our text, Elijah, well, maybe he's forgotten the lessons and the love of God, of how God took care of him at the brook Carrot. You know, he was fed by the ravens. I mean, he had told Elijah, and again, that gets evil, wicked. I mean, not, he told Ahab and Jezebel about the fact that there was going to be the rain, and then they flew. I mean, he ran to the brook where God had directed him. God actually directed him to the brook of Kareth, where he was fed by the ravens, if you remember. Of course, it dried up, and he went to Zarephath. So, I mean, he's learned lessons all along the path that God's been leading him. But now we see in this situation, suddenly his circumstances his eyes are on what's happening. His eyes are on his circumstances rather than being up on the Lord. And when that happens to us, like it's happened to Elijah, and our eyes get fixed upon our problems, ourselves, our situation, we begin to ask, why me, Lord? Why is this happening to me? And we don't have an immediate answer, so we act like Elijah. We get exhausted, we get discouraged, we lay down, we pray a prayer, and we fall asleep waiting for a better day. And we often need is a friend to help us be brought back to the comfort of God. To be reminded of His everlasting, unconditional love that is there for all people. We need a friend to bring us back to understand that love. Because we're focused on our situation, our circumstances, rather than God. So it's, so it's happening to Elijah. So in the text, we can equate to that. We can make a parallel to that because it happens in our lives. But notice, in Elijah's case, he has this friend appear to him to bring him back to the loving comfort of God, but it happens to be an angel, verse 5. Of course, he's laid down. He's under the broom tree, sleeping, maybe waiting for a better day. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. I mean, Elijah woke up at the touch of a divinely sent messenger. The angel, if you notice in the text, had 
prepared freshly baked bread, still warm and plenty of water, which he invited Elijah to eat and to drink. There is nothing, there's nothing maybe as wonderful as an aroma than fresh baked bread. Have you had some? You ever walked into a subway and you, one of the very first things you smell in a subway restaurant is that fresh baked bread. It's wonderful. My mom is a great cook, and she makes hot rolls. You walk into her house, she's making hot rolls. You got I gotta have one of them right now because they smell so wonderful. My aunt is a cook for the school. Every Friday morning, she's making hot rolls and cinnamon rolls. When I walk in the morning at six o'clock and the smell those cinnamon rolls baking, I'm thinking I'm on a diet, but I gotta have one because it smells so wonderful. I mean, there's nothing like fresh, fresh baked bread. It's wonderful. And the smell permeates everywhere. So Elijah then has fresh baked bread. He's encouraged to eat. But rather interestingly, the prophet did so. Then he returned to his rest. Verse 7. The angel, a second time, the angel of the Lord came again and touched him. He said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. I mean, notice Elijah woke. The angel woke Elijah a second time, perhaps he slept for some time, but doesn't define how long, and urged him to eat more food since the journey for him was going to require more energy. Now, verse 8 says, He arose and ate and drank, went in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights, the horror of the mouth of God. We've got to stop here for a moment and begin to explain some things that's hidden in the text, kind of embedded there. It's subtle because it says 40 days and 40 nights. But years ago, Moses and the Israelites had traveled in that same wilderness for 40 years, sustained by the manna that God provided for them. And at the same time, then they learned lessons of his faithful care, his love and provisions. Well, then now the text is saying, telling us that Elijah is going to travel the same country, the same desert, not for 40 years, but 40 days and 40 nights. He's going to be sustained by the bread God provided for them, and he will learn some lessons. He travels on a journey from Beersheba to Mount Horeb. Now, Mount Horeb is the ancient name for Mount Sinai. Most of us have heard of Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is referred to as the mountain of God, the very place where God had revealed himself to Moses and the Israelites, and where he entered a covenant with his chosen people. Now, Get this then. Ideally, the travel time is going to be 40 days and 40 nights for Elijah. But if he goes 200 miles, which is approximate time or approximate distance to go from Beersheba to Mount Sinai, 200 miles and 15 miles a day is going to be about 14 days to get there. But he's going for 40 days and 40 nights. So much like it was with the Israelites. God has a plan of taking him and reminding him now of the teaching and the love and protection like he had for the Israelites, although they did it for 40 years. He's going to do that for 40 days and 40 nights. You with me? It should be a 14, 15-day journey, but he's going to make it 40 because the Lord's going to lead him and talk to him and speak to him. It reveals yet a second application. Because it seems God is always one or more steps ahead of us in life. And is always teaching and directing us. 
He's always way ahead of us. I mean, we, we think we know, we don't know, but he does. But he's always directing this really via the Holy Spirit. And then maybe you then can even reflect upon your own journey in life and recognize how God was directing you and your steps and your path, providing for you, teaching you certain lessons in life. And I can certainly look back on my life and clearly see how God was directing me from one state to another and then back again to Indiana. I'm in four states working back. But at times whenever he was directing me, if I'm being perfectly honest with you, and I should, then there's days I wasn't even listening. I was often directed on a path that I wanted rather than God's will. Almost like what's happening for Elijah. I mean, Elijah is running and fleeing. I mean, he chose, Elijah chose to run and to flee. It, it, he's pursuing his own will, his own circumstances rather than God's will. And it's amazing how many times we think that we know more than God and the best course for our lives. It happened to the Israelites. It's happening now to Elijah. It happened to Jonah and many others. How many times we think we know more than God and the best course for our lives? I mean, has it, it happened to you before? Is it happening to you now? How many of us think we know more than God? If we're honest, we would probably raise our hand because we do. We think we know what's best for us. Rather than recognizing God knows truly what's best. And just now submitting ourselves to his will. And it may be the case here at the moment with Elijah. Where something awakens him, an angel, and directs us then to listen to God. He directs him to listen to God. Maybe Elijah is getting the wake-up call that he needs from the, from the messenger or maybe from God directly. But he's getting the wake-up that he needs to recognize he's doing his own will, not God's. We go back to the story, look at verse 9, because Elijah gets the wake-up call. Maybe he's doing things on his own. He comes to Mount Horeb, and he lodged there in a cave. Look at verse 9 then, as it's happening, as he lodged in the cave, said the word Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? It's like God is saying to Elijah, What are you doing here, my son? God had not sent him to the cave for Bathsheba. To the, he had not sent him here as he had all the other places. Every, everything we've been seeing so far is him listening to the Lord and going where the Lord directed him. But Elijah now had run out of fear. Look at God's, Elijah's response to God's question. He says, what are you doing here? So Elijah said in verse 10, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. God asked him, what are you doing here? What's, how's the answer? He answers, Lord, I'm, I'm hiding because I'm, I'm afraid. That's a short little response, but Eugene Peterson, I like his words in the message. He says, Elijah's response is, I've been working my heart out for the God angel armies. The people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, Lord. They've destroyed the places of worship, and they murdered your prophets. 
I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me. That's how he answers God's question. Maybe you can sense a little bit of self-centeredness in Elijah's response. Maybe even a hint of self-pity. I mean, we can detect that within the storyline and maybe his response because God, again, has not directed him to this cave. God had not told him to run from Jezebel. But Elijah was focused on his circumstances rather than waiting and listening to God. Like a lot of us do. He's focused on his circumstances rather than listening and waiting on God. But God did indeed speak. Let's look in verse 11. God speaks and he says, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. I asked it like the New Living Translation. It just simplifies it. God just says, Go out and stand on the mountain before me. Go out and stand before me on the mountain. So he's speaking now, and he tells Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain. Now look, remarkably, in the following verses, it tells us that as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. You see it? It's such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. Then after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Verse 12 even adds that after the earthquake, there was a what? There was a fire. Was the Lord in the fire? No. He was not in the wind. He was not in the earthquake. He was not in the fire. After the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. Verse 13, when Elijah heard the whisper, is that he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Hasn't he been asked that once before? The Lord asked him a second time, what are you doing here, Elijah? And notice in, in verse 14, he answers just exactly as he did in verse 10. Go back later and compare verse 10 and verse 14. You find that the exact same words are used verbatim. His response doesn't change. In verse 14, he says once more, I have been Ask him, why are you here? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I am, I want to live, and they seek to take my life away. Basically, Elijah complained the Israelites had abandoned God and that he was the last prophet of the Lord. He thinks he's all alone. But Elijah was mistaken. Because verse 18, a little bit later, reveals there's 7,000 without allegiance to God. They've never, they've never bowed to Baal. They've never kissed him. So it tells us a, a great truth that God always has a remnant available for communicating truth. But a lot has happened here. We'll go through the story rather quickly, but a lot has happened. So let's just kind of slow down. And, and as God makes this point, that there's a remnant there. That's not the most important point. Let's recognize in these last set of verses what has happened. I mean, God brought a succession of a great powerful wind and the earthquake to follow. Then after the earthquake, a fire to ravage the mountain. 
But the prophet did not hear God in any of these events. Instead, Elijah heard the Lord in a small whisper. And by this, then the prophet learned the point. But sometimes God works in quiet ways. It's our third application. Sometimes God works in very quiet, subtle ways. So quiet, perhaps, does God work that we don't even hear it. We miss it. In fact, let me just ask you, who has actually heard the audible voice of God? Like, I am speaking to you now. Who's heard God speak to you audibly? I mean, no one has. No one I know has ever heard God speak audibly to them. But yet God does speak to each and every one of us. And sometimes it's not in that big grandiose fashion that we're waiting for, but rather subtly like a quiet whisper. And you may hear me say that and think, well, I don't know. These guys, I've never heard God speak to me in any way, form, or fashion. And if you told me that you've never heard God speak to you in any possible way, I would say to you, maybe you aren't listening. Maybe you just need to have some quiet time and listen for that whisper. Because he is speaking. Not audibly, perhaps, as I am, but God is still speaking to each and one of us in that day we live. So let us then, as we see how we recognize how God does speak to us, let me give you four ways that God does speak to us in modern day. And the first is this, through personal prayer and Bible reading. I got it in your notes, so you ain't got to just listen. It's in your personal prayer and your Bible reading. I like the words of Rick Warren, who says, if you're not having a daily quiet time in reading the Bible, God is getting a business signal when he wants to speak to you. One of the ways God speaks to you is through personal prayer in your Bible. The second way is through Christ-centered Bible-based sermons, studies, and messages. I remember years ago when I first started attending First Baptist Church in Clinton, Mississippi, I was absolutely stunned and amazed of how Rob Boyd, the preacher there, knew everything was happening in my life. I thought, man, how does he know? He's not following me around. I haven't seen him lurking in the shadows, but everywhere... I, I, everything he seemed to know was happening to my life. I'm thinking, he's not in my house. He's not in my workplace. How does he know these things? But it was the Holy Spirit speaking to us, speaking to me. And, and through his messages, through his word, I was recognizing God was speaking to me. Again, through the Holy Spirit, which is a third way that God speaks to us. And we often ignore that quiet little voice inside of us telling us something we should avoid. But we go ahead and do it anyway because it seems too tempting or because we're just very weak. But in the fourth way that God speaks to us is through the actions or words of the people or in circumstances. And at times, that can be mind-boggling. It's like when you start to listen to God, especially through some circumstances and through some teachers of the Bible, you begin to have something to give to you, a message that you thought, okay, there's my answer I was looking for, and you really weren't expecting it. Through circumstances, a message, a teaching of some kind, God's speaking to you, you think, there's the answer I needed. And you got to know that's God speaking to you, and that's what he wants you to do. 
And then you can't let anybody talk you out of it. My son Tyler was going to move from Texas to Indiana and, and go into ministry. But his friends in Texas said, that's not what you're supposed to do. They want him to selfishly stay there and continue to live there in Texas with them. And I remember telling him, if that's truly what you think God is telling you to do, you cannot let someone talk you out of it because they'll try. And they did. But God speaks to us also through actions or words of other people and circumstances. So there's just four ways in which God speaks to us. But we're always looking for something grand, something big. And the text reveals for us that many times we're waiting for some big billboard pronouncement. Some major sign on the highway. But it can often be as subtle as a whisper that God speaks to us. A whisper. Whisper. Can you hear me? God speaks to us through a whisper. Have you ever noticed that if you're in a conversation with someone and you're paying attention, if their voice gets real quiet, you know, for me, I'm hard hearing anyway, i got to really pay attention, but if you have good hearing and, and someone begins to quiet their voice, begins to whisper, I begin to tell you what happened to the whisper. You immediately are drawn to them and start concentrating and focusing on them. Much more so than if, a, if they just shout it out. If they shout it out, you might ignore them, but if people begin to whisper, you begin to focus upon them and listen. That's what happens in life. So why would we not expect God to get our attention in the same way or in a similar manner? Why would we not expect God to speak to us like he has to Elijah with a gentle, sweet, powerful, mighty whisper? He does. God speaks to us in quiet ways. And often to a whisper. The only problem is we're too busy to listen. Or we're concentrating on ourselves and our problems more than God. Which was the case for Elijah. So then God grabs Elijah's attention with a whisper. And it's often then how he gets our attention. So we, we dissect a little bit of Elijah today. But we stop here with this whisper. Because maybe now we need to recognize that God is speaking to you right now here this morning. Maybe through the words, maybe through the reading, maybe through a whisper. God is speaking to you. And the Holy Spirit is prompting you to respond right now. He's speaking directly to your heart. So don't ignore the small voice, the whisper. Let it speak loudly to you this morning. I ask you, beg you to start listening to the whisper, that sweet sound of a gentle, powerful whisper. Because when you hear that, that is God calling you. Father, Lord, we thank you for this message today. Which reminds us of how you speak to us. We do recognize, Lord, you do speak to each and every one of us, to your children today. You provide for us, you protect us, you love us, you speak to us. I pray for all of us today to listen. To listen to you as you speak to us today. Recognizing, Lord, there's need here this morning. 
We come in with baggage, Lord, and sometimes it gets in our way of actually listening because again, life is happening around us. But I pray we set all that aside today and just listen for their voice. Listen for that gentle, powerful whisper that you have for us. And to focus upon you. And then how that focus upon you will, will take our problems away. Lord, I'm thankful that you speak to me. I'm thankful that you speak to your children today. And I pray to all of us then would listen to your voice and respond accordingly. I pray for all of us to hear your voice. I hear you calling. And if we've never won here today except for Christ, they would today. Let's listen to you, Lord. And let's be thankful that you speak to us. And we're always thankful for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.